Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, Norman Solomon sheds light on the perpetual war that the United States has been fighting in Afghanistan, Syria, and other lesser-known deployments globally. He explains how this war remains almost entirely invisible to the American public, shielded by bipartisan political support and compliant journalists. It's published by the New Press and brings Norman Solomon, the co-founder of RootsActionOrg.org and founding director of the Institute for Public Public Accuracy, to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Uh, More than 20 years ago, 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan led to a shift in American foreign policy. How much of a shift was it? I think it was a shift in terms of the way in which the United States has engaged war But the shift has been in several different stages. For instance, when we had the wars of the 1980s and 90s, uh, you might say a dress rehearsal for the so-called war on terror with the invasions of Grenada and Panama in 1983 and 1989. Then the Gulf War, which was a ferocious, mostly air bombing campaign, 1991. Uh, Those were um, intermittent and increasingly deadly, but people would ask, for instance, how long do you think the Gulf War will last? Hmm. After 9-11, after the beginning of the so-called War on Terror, that question pretty soon wasn't asked at all. I mean, really, Leonard, how often do we hear people saying or asking, hey, uh, how long do you think the uh, War on Terror is going to last before it ends? That was a real shift. Uh, because as the years went by after after October of 2001, gradually it became background noise. And mm. the other shift I would mention is that as the years went by, fewer and fewer so-called boots on the ground. More and more it was a reliance on air war, and more and more there became less and less attention to any involvement of the U.S. militarily in terms of U.S. media and p- political coverage. Let's back up a bit. In 1947, the Defense Department was known as the War Department. How relevant is that name change? I think it's relevant in that there was a very savvy understanding uh, in the post-war period, uh, 1946 and 1947, as there was a gear up, as there was a um, comprehension and momentum towards a Cold War with the Soviet Union and then soon with China, that there was a tremendous amount of money to be made in the gear up and the mobilization and the expenditures for the military. And so, for instance, scientists who came out of the Manhattan Project and other World War II era endeavors pretty soon learned that if they went into academia, for instance, the funding was going to come uh, through the War Department, and then the renamed Defense Department. So with the, the, the advertising name, so to speak, was a significant change. And there's something else I would flag, which I, I talk about in my book, and that's another reason I titled it War Made Invisible, because the ways in which words are used, as George Orwell pointed out, they don't cause us to be foolish, but they make it easier. And so in this case, Many people, and this this includes uh, my colleagues in the anti-war movement, usually, 
We refer when we're talking to the defense budget. We refer to defense spending. That's wrong. That is giving away the entire discourse right away. Who's against defense? Don't people want other people or ourselves to defend ourselves? We have internalized the idea that this is lowercase d defense spending. No, it is military spending uh, under the Biden administration with bipartisan push from Capitol Hill. We're up above uh, $850 billion a year in military spending through the Pentagon. That doesn't Mm -hmm. even include nuclear weapons. So uh, we have to uh, find better ways and better language to even describe reality. Uh, The Pentagon consistently calls the killing of civilians by our military honest errors. What impact do the words that the government uses to describe war have on the American public and our perceptions of war? Tremendous impact, especially because it is filtered and echoed through the U.S. news media, uh, mainstream media. And I would include, frankly, Are we complicit? Uh, Well, by passivity, by silence, uh, we had a tremendous and very life-saving movement in the 1980s um, against AIDS called silence equals death. That was a Mm. motto, a very good one. Yes, we are complicit through our silence. And that's definitely true with elected officials, including, uh, unfortunately, uh, for the most part, those in the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That is complicity to go along to get along with what we have now in our 22nd year ongoing war, mislabeled as a war on terror, uh, better to be called, I think, war of terrorism. What about some of the other labels? By mid-spring 2002, hadn't as many as 20,000 Afghan civilians been reported to have lost their lives during targeted, highly precise, we said, American attacks? Well, how precise were they? Well, they were precise in the mind of the Pentagon planners. They were mythically precise. And I quote in the book, uh, then Defense Secretary, again, that's the uppercase D, the formal name, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, who said uh, that we have incredibly precise weapons. He used the word humane. We are, mm-hmm. we are humane in our targeting, the care that is taken, he said, to make sure that only the targets uh, that are intended are actually struck. Well, this is mythology for two reasons. One is that those weapons were not nearly as precise Uh, as uh, was claimed. And also that a lot of times, even if there were targets, the Pentagon didn't even know who they were killing. Hmm. They didn't know if they were militants, if they were farmers or whatever in many cases. And another aspect was that uh, the number we're talking about and and the one you mentioned, which was uh, by early uh, the beginning of 2002, so just months after the U.S., Uh, initial attack on Afghanistan, there are indirect deaths, and they outnumber the direct ones. Uh, Yes, people are blown up by missiles and bombs and so forth, but the ripple effects through infrastructure, health care, housing, basic sanitation, for every one killed by a bomb, there are several who are killed uh, indirectly, but just as surely. And for anybody who would like the data, I recommend going to the Cost of War Project site at Brown University. Very easy to Google. And they have done a fairly accurate, uh, almost precise estimates. And they have come to, and Leonard, I think this is an important sort of backdrop to look at the last 22 years. 
they have estimated about 900,000 people directly killed by the U.S. Hmm. post-9-11 wars. That's directly, indirectly inclusive, both direct and indirect. The number is now 4.5 million. Oh, my. Well, 46,319 Afghan civilians, probably an estimation. Some 53,000 opposition uh, fighters have been killed. Almost 67,000 other people were killed in Pakistan in relation to the Afghan war. We don't even hear about that. Right. This is another layer of invisibility, just as now here we are. We're talking uh, basically uh, midsummer. We're August 2023. And the overwhelming impression through omission, through silence from U.S. news media and politicians is that the United States is no longer at war. As a matter of fact, almost exactly now, two years after President Biden went to the United Nations, spoke to the General Assembly, and he said, for the first time in 20 years, the United States is no longer at war. He used the <laughs> phrase, we have turned the page. Hmm. Well, immediately after that, the United States uh, was, was bombing in, in Syria, uh, had troops on the ground in Syria, as the U.S. still does, engaged in combat operations. The U.S. has been bombing in Somalia. There are special operations troops in many countries, uh, more than 100. It's staggering to actually look at that. And at Brown University, again, at the Cost of War Project, even as Biden spoke at the U.N., uh, the co-director of the project said the U.S. was engaged in so-called counterterrorism activities in more than 80 countries. So we're in a sort of Orwellian zone where if the U.S. news media and the political establishment don't acknowledge something exists or is going on, we're encouraged to believe that. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large is Norman Solomon. His latest book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine, published by the New Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, now, why do you think there's been such a disparity in the coverage and compassion for the impact on Ukrainian civilians in, in that war with Russia in, in contrast to the lack of coverage and, and indifference to the suffering of Iraqi civilians uh, after America invaded in 20, 2003? This is a chronic instance of a doublethink, what Orwell would call doublethink. In the book, oh, double standard. One reason, oh, pardon me. Double standard. Yes, a double standard, and uh, in the book 1984 by Orwell, referred to as double think, where we're encouraged to put some facts on the shelf when they're not convenient, and then take them out and look at them and trumpet them when convenient. This is a major theme of my book. It's another form of war made invisible that we have basically two standards of grief. It's tacit, it's not acknowledged, but basically the message from U.S. media, mass media, and politics is that there are two tiers of grief. Grief of people who matter and grief of people who don't. And so the example you're bringing up is a very clear one. Now we have, if you set aside the political spin, 
painting the windows on the world red, white, and blue that comes out of U.S. media and politics, the media coverage of the actual suffering in Ukraine is very good. It's very evocative. It's what journalism should include when there's coverage of war. A big problem, though, is that it's a 180, virtually, from what we got when the U.S. invaded Iraq. And so at the Media Watch Group Fair, there was a study done and found that the New York Times had 14 different stories high up on the front page in the initial period of the Russian invasion of Ukraine about the suffering of civilians. During a comparable period, the New York Times had a grand total of one story like that after the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And so the tacit message, which is pretty rigorously maintained from U.S. media, is that when the United States kills civilians, it's no big deal. It has no reflection on our character, our national purpose, or foreign policy. But when the designated enemy of the United States kills civilians, well, it's horrific, it's terrible, it should be routinely condemned. And this was mirrored by the coverage of the use of cluster munitions in Ukraine. Because when Russia invaded and began to use cluster munitions, U.S. media and politics justifiably condemned that as a horror, as one of the use of one of the worst weapons in modern warfare, horrific, almost by design to kill civilians as well as military personnel. And yet, when the United States, when the Biden administration gave a green light and began to ship cluster munitions to Ukraine for use by Ukrainian forces, it was a pretty muted response. So, again, this is another example of, yes, double standard and double thing. Another double standard, I assume, is the interview on 60 Minutes with Madeleine Albright, who was then U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, she was asked by Leslie Stahl about sanctions on Iraq and the estimated half a million children who had died as a result. And Albright replied, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Now, there was some backlash, but she was still confirmed unanimously by the Senate as Secretary of State after that. Yes, it's really telling that the vote in the Senate was 99 to 0. So uh, apparently her comments that it was, quote-unquote, we think it's worth it to uh, maintain sanctions, killing an estimated half a million Iraqi children, apparently that was no big deal uh, Mm -hmm. to the political establishment. And I comment in the book that what if in situations like that, it was the children of the senators, of the president, of those uh, who made those kind of decisions? What if it was their lives at stake? And that's where the the nationalism, the arrogance, and the racial bias comes into play. I have a chapter in the book called Racism, or actually the title of it is uh, The Color of War. And in It's race and religion, cult- isn't it? Two, it it well, is. are connected in many are, cases. They are. They're very much interspersed because when you actually step back and think about it, and this is an observation that I have not seen in mass media at all, uh, since October 2001, when the so-called War on Terror began, virtually all of the victims of U.S. firepower 
in many countries have been people of color. And as you're alluding to, in most cases, they are Muslim. And so it makes it especially easy for the political establishment in the United States to rubber stamp, to approve, and to uh, accept these kind of policies. And I make it really clear in the book, the United States does not bomb countries because they're inhabited by people of color. But when countries are inhabited by people of color, it makes it easier for the United States, the political establishment, the media establishment, to accept and encourage ongoing warfare on that country. It's really something that we should face up to. When the United States attacked Afghanistan 26 days after 9-11, a Gallup poll found that 90% of Americans approved of the military action, 5% were opposed, and 5 said they were unsure. Yeah, this is such a, a stunning example of the power of propaganda. 90%. These are Soviet-style Soviet, uh, proportions when only one out of 20 people in the country, after being exposed to the onslaught of propaganda, just one out of 20 people in the United States thought it was a bad idea to bomb Afghanistan, even though not one of the 9-11 hijackers was from Afghanistan. And that, I think, hmm. underscores how we do live in a propagandized society. There are cracks in the wall, uh, and just because there are cracks, it doesn't mean there isn't a propaganda wall. If we were listening to, and I'm sure some people who are tuned in right now uh, were in this situation, um, if we were listening to WBAI in October of 2001, we would have heard, and people did hear, dissenting voices. But that is very unusual. And as I say in a chapter uh, titled Repetition and Omission, the essence of propaganda is repetition. That's why a station like WBI is so important to challenge and disrupt, to be an exception. It is unfortunate that it is just such a small exception to have other critical voices heard in the United States. It's absolutely necessary that we be heard. A lot more people follow Fox and follow Pacifica. Um, Indeed. Now, the... the there's been a consistent, strong bipartisan support for the Pentagon, defense spending, and U.S. military intervention. Is this one area where there's general bipartisan agreement, or is that falling apart now as all other bipartisan agreements seem to be falling apart? Well, it's a great question, and it points up the huge distinction between the battles between the two parties on domestic policy and foreign policy. I think it's really important for progressives or anyone else to be very clear that the Republican Party has become a neo-fascist party. This is a party, the GOP, is run by people at the top and appealing to its base with the belief that democracy is a bad thing. They're against democracy, especially they don't want low-income people, people of color, women to a large extent, they don't want them to have a voice. And so we do have this fascistic politics that is centered in the Republican Party right now. 
and that is extremely dangerous. When you look at the domestic policies and advocacy between the Democratic and Republican Party leadership, it's a huge difference. I'm not saying it's adequate from the Democratic Party. It is not. And I'm part of RootsAction.org. People are invited to sign up uh, for our action alerts at RootsAction.org. And you will get a lot of important action uh, uh, options uh, through email, uh, which is very important. We have more than one million supporters right now. Uh, We are challenging corporate Democrats, but still we need to acknowledge this is a huge difference in uh, domestic policies and outlooks of the two major parties. But the big difference ends at the water's edge. When we get to foreign policy, it is very difficult to find, other than issues of, say, climate change, very difficult to find significant differences between the Democratic and Republican parties. And while there's some dissent within the Republican uh, caucus of the House and Senate about Biden's policies towards Ukraine, when you scratch the surface, a lot of uh, those people in the Republican hierarchy, they just want to focus more on military confrontation with China. So we have two militaristic parties uh, in Washington running the show, and it's extremely dangerous. And what's the mission of RootsAction.org? Well, we were founded uh, about 12 years ago, frankly, because we found that the dominant online action groups were too willing to defer to the Democratic Party. Uh, And it seemed, for instance, that MoveOn was opposed to uh, war in Iraq when a Republican in the White House was pursuing it. But when Obama came in, they basically caved. And so RootsAction.org is a multi-issue organization um, I, I co-founded it with Jeff Cohen, who was the founder of the great media watch group FAIR. You can find that at FAIR.org. And so we began with zero supporters. And as I mentioned, we've we gradually grown to more than one million. We take many actions online. Uh, we can uh, go to many specific issues. And uh, we are explicitly multi-issue, but it's, we especially... Uh, do focus to a large extent often on foreign policy and U.S. militarism because there's such a gap, frankly. And uh, RootsAction.org is very much about having a single standard of human rights, a single standard of international conduct. And so we condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine just as we condemn past and present U.S. militarism and attacks on other countries. There ought to be something adhered to called international law, for instance. Now, some people, like Joan Didion, have spoken out against the war on terror. Has that had a, a negative impact on their lives? It's really a truism in journalism, for instance, of U.S. media, that being pro-war, and I mean pro-war in the sense of supporting U.S. wars, means never having to say that you're sorry. <laughs> it is equated with being objective to be pro-war. For instance, if you look at the New Yorker magazine and you look at their stable of writers over a period of the last couple of decades, uh, you have one after another uh, who were huge supporters of invading Iraq, often on false pretenses, even David Remnick, that they're the editor saying, and still the editor saying before the invasion of Iraq, there are weapons of mass destruction. We must not lose this opportunity to invade Iraq. There was falsehoods in that magazine. 
again and again, tying Saddam Hussein's terrible regime to al-Qaeda, complete falsehoods. And yet there was no accountability afterwards when there were no weapons of mass destruction, when a lot of those lies were exposed. Those journalists, and this is true at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, it's true of people like Thomas Friedman, the columnist at the Times. It's true of the parade of establishment journalists who are brought on to NPR programs like Fresh Air, hosted by Terry Gross. Hmm. These folks were wrong about the invasion of Iraq. They were wrong about the viability or the morality of the U.S. war in Afghanistan. And yet there is no professional problem whatsoever. Now, Matthew. In contrast. Here, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous, and it is part of our propaganda system. On the other hand, what happened to the courageous journalists who were willing to raise questions? And I'll uh, mention two of them here quickly. One is the uh, wonderful Phil Donahue, who hmm. after decades as a, a terrific career as a path-breaking host on network television, he went on to MSNBC. And he had a show on MSNBC, top-rated in terms of viewership uh, for primetime in uh, 2002. Uh, but he had the temerity to not only have pro-war voices on, but he also had anti-war guests who raised basic questions against the wisdom of the U.S. invading Iraq, that invasion impending at that point. And his show was summarily canceled just a few weeks before what turned out to be the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Why was he fired? Why was his show dumped off of MSNBC? Well, we don't have to speculate hmm. because there was a leak of a couple of memos from MSNBC and NBC management before his show was canceled. And the memos from top management said that NBC, MSNBC, they were worried that Phil Donahue was actually allowing the mix of guests to include anti-war guests. And he said, they said in their memos that it would make MSNBC look bad while their rivals, their competitors at Fox and CNN were waving the flag. So Phil Donahue was an object lesson, just as the triumph professionally of pro-war journalists, people like Thomas Friedman at the New York Times, that's an object lesson. But what happened to Phil Donahue was an object lesson to other journalists that if you're going to be truly independent and include challenges in your work to U.S. foreign policy at a gut level, not only that it might not be tactically proper for the U.S. to invade a country if powers that be want to, but that it is not a prerogative or should not be a right of the United States to go around invading and bombing other countries to work its will. That is a bridge too far as far as corporate media are concerned. Another example is Ashley Banfield, who was a rising star at MSNBC and NBC. She was at the Twin Towers when they fell. She was young, vibrant, praised by the New York Times as possibly a successor to Katie Couric in the top anchor chair of NBC. She covered the uh, invasion of Iraq. And then she made one mistake. She went to a campus in Kansas and gave a speech 
and said that there's a difference between coverage and journalism. She said, our networks, they showed you what happened when the missiles were launched, but they didn't show you what happened after the missiles landed. She said, I can assure you it's not just puffs of smoke and dust. And within an hour, her career hit a wall because the top management at MSNBC and NBC freaked out, immediately issued statements that she did not speak for the network. She did not mean to disparage her colleagues. When she got back to Manhattan, she was put basically in a tape closet. She was not allowed out of her contract. And her career, her big-time career, was basically finished. That's another example that I cite in my book, War Made Invisible, because it shows how these object lessons, the discipline, the glass ceiling, the brick ceiling that independent journalists get, if they challenge U.S. foreign policy fundamentally, it was true 20 years ago. And it's really also true today. So what was what happened to Matthew Lazar, who said in response to a tribute President Bush offered to his uncle, who died inside the World Trade Center, helping a quadriplegic friend, he said, I mourn the death of my uncle, and I want his murderers brought to justice, but I'm not making this statement to demand bloody vengeance. Afghanistan has more than a million homeless refugees. A U.S. military intervention could result in the starvation of tens of thousands of people. What I see coming are actions and policies that will cost many more innocent lives and breed more terrorism, not less. I do not feel that my uncle's compassionate, heroic sacrifice will be honored by what the U.S. appears poised to do. That makes great sense. So how did the public respond to that? Well, unfortunately, the public did not get much access to statements like that. Uh, Matthew Lazar, who was in mourning uh, after 9-11, as you mentioned, his uncle who died, uh, heroically staying in the uh, uh, World Trade Center high up to stay with his, uh, his friend who was in a wheelchair, uh, President Bush citing him by name, in a speech, a war speech, a few days later, and Matthew Lazar saying, as others did, uh, don't uh, attack and kill civilians in Afghanistan in the name of uh, my uh, lost relatives who I'm now mourning. Uh, Really, Leonard, when I go back and look at quotes like that in my book, I still get chills. I got chills typing out those quotes. I still feel that these were prophetic in moral and political terms, uh, voices that were Cassandra voices, given the power of the U.S. media elites and the military-industrial complex. Another person who I quote in the book is uh, the Detroit Bishop Gumbleton, who warned and explicitly called out President Bush before the attack on Afghanistan, saying, Why won't you negotiate? Why won't you have talk instead of bombing Afghanistan? Why don't you learn from history? I have to take a little break here. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Norman Solomon. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's given the number 2WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation. In the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much, and return to Norman Solomon to talk about his book, War Made Invisible, which is published by the new press. Now, um, is this something that is a self-imposed thing? Um, You say part of the problem is compliant American journalists. Why aren't journalists covering American military engagements more accurately? Uh, Is it because some were punished, like the, the, uh, the examples you gave? It's a great question, and I think it's multifactorial. Uh, certainly when, and I was among the many uh, young journalists uh, quite a while ago, in my case, coming into the profession, what is the model, what we are encouraged to emulate, is what people are doing who are farther along in the profession, who have achieved uh, claim, who have risen in the ranks of media institutions. And so the baseline of what is already happening is pretty much what younger journalists are encouraged to emulate and and do. And so especially when really, they see somebody like Phil Donahue punished for taking a position. Absolutely, uh, when they see praise being heaped on those who parrot the Pentagon line, uh, like say Barbara Starr at the at CNN from the Pentagon, who's been doing it for decades and countless others, well, that's an encouragement uh, to to imitate them one way or the other. Whereas, as you say, uh, Phil Donahue, Ashley Banfield, when their careers are derailed because they actually do report without fear or favor, without being uh, government de facto mouthpieces. So journalists and would-be journalists really uh, learn from that. And if they don't imitate that... Um, successful, quote-unquote, behavior in the profession, then they really only have a couple of other choices. They can leave the profession, or they can leave the establishment outlets anyway, and strike out on their own. We know that I.F. Stone long ago did that with I.F. Stone's Weekly. We know that the uh, great journalist who uh, we miss very much now, Robert Perry, after uh, winning a Polk Award at AP for exposing uh, Oliver North's uh, activities, uh, who went on to Newsweek and then found he couldn't report independently at Newsweek. And so he started his own outlet. So those are examples, but you really don't have a lot of choices, especially in the foreign policy realm. If you're a, a journalist in a mainstream outlet, you can either um, go along to get along you can uh, really rock the boat and maybe be laid off or certainly not rise in the ranks, or you can quit. And the problems that we face, though, are so huge that people 
have the opportunity and, and, and many times the imperative that they feel to maintain their integrity, to go ahead and uh, recognizing the dangers from militarism, who is suffering from these wars, the overarching dangers of nuclear war, the climate emergency, simply doing as you're told for many folks is not palatable and for some folks is absolutely unacceptable. So now, 20 years after military action in Iraq, uh, is the media doing a better job, is issuing harsher judgments of the American military, or have we fallen into some kind of a groove? It's really a groove. It's really a rut. And there's a, a chapter in my book called Now It Can Be Told. So at the time of the attacks on Afghanistan and then March 2003 invasion of Iraq, uh, especially after the uh, invasion began, the U.S. mass media titans and those who were the, so to speak, foot soldiers, they basically saluted. And now, yes, we will see critiques of, oh, the U.S., the term is often used, blunder. It was a blunder to invade Iraq and so forth. But that's just way after the fact. That's a lag time after it really doesn't make much difference. In real time, uh, the United States warfare in Syria, uh, involvement in warfare in Somalia, in many other African countries, uh, there's very, very little challenge coming. So I'm, I'm giving a, a, a somewhat long-winded answer to your very good question, which is things have not improved. It's the same basic pattern. Oh, and the massive Pentagon budgets are being funded. $768 billion last fiscal year, while domestic programs are losing out. Um, is anybody making the point that there's been some kind of a trade-off here? There are efforts. Uh, certainly to make uh, that point. At, at RootsAction.org, we do some other anti-war social justice groups as well. The National Priorities Project is a terrific uh, research outfit that explains this again and again. About 55% of the federal discretionary budget now going to the military. And it's the burial of history that is part of this process. History, as, as Orwell said, those who control the past control the future. Those who control the present control the past. And the destruction of history, uh, putting unpleasant facts down the memory hall, the vacuum tube, is really central to our problem right now. And I'll give an example which I cite in the book. Martin Luther King Jr. went down by the Riverside, Riverside Church, on April 4th, 1967, and he said that not only must we not study war no more, not only was the war on Vietnam absolutely morally repugnant, but he also said, and this was his terminology, that the huge military spending uh, was a, quote, demonic suction tube that was taking money away from health care, education, housing, elderly care, taking care of children. So many ways when in 1967 food was literally being taken out of the mouths of children. People in the United States were dying at home through lack of 
health care and housing and sanitation and nutrition. And that was going on in 1967. And it's going on in 2023. And this is a historic reality of what Dr. King said and stood for. And so you can look at during Martin Luther King holiday or the anniversaries of his uh, assassination on April 4th. And sometimes you will see on PBS or the commercial networks or you will hear on NPR uh, snippets from his wonderful 1963 speech, I Have a Dream, a wonderful speech. But you will virtually never hear anything from Dr. King's speech at Riverside Church in 1967 when he said the United States was the most violent country in the world, the most destructive through its military force. That's simply not a message that the military-industrial media complex wants us to hear. How has Saudi Arabia escaped much of the blame? Uh, Fifteen of the 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. None of them were from Afghanistan, and yet we have focused on Afghanistan. Not that Afghanistan doesn't present other problems. Yes. Uh, Well, I I think a three-letter word uh, helps to explain it. Oil. Oil is crucial. And I remember when the invasion was impending of Iraq, uh, when the suggestion was made that oil was a major factor, that was roundly denounced by many, including New York Times columnists. Oh, how can you say that? How can you claim that oil has anything to do with the uh, plans to invade Iraq? And yet we know that uh, oil had a lot to do with this invasion. As a matter of fact, I have uh, quotations in my book from Alan Greenspan, uh, the uh, former Federal Reserve chairman, also from Chuck Hagel, the senator and then uh uppercase D defense secretary, and from General John Abizade, the former head of U.S. uh, General Command and Military Operations in Iraq, all three of them by 2007 were saying that the war was for oil or that oil was a major reason for the invasion. So in 2023, we can look at that in a current context. You know, if the United States government is so damn moral why is it that it continues to support the Saudi Arabian war on Yemen, which has uh, taken, according to the U.N., almost 400,000 lives? A year ago, President Biden went and fist bumped the de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. And that was while Saudi Arabia was still leading the bombing of Yemen. So it goes to your earlier point, Leonard, about the double standard where Yes, uh, in this case, you go all over the country and people have been encouraged to display Ukrainian flags in solidarity with the civilians of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. Well, I'm, I'm all for that. I can't find a single Yemeni flag in my neighborhood. I haven't heard of anybody seeing Yemeni flags displayed. And you might say, well, and gee, that's, uh, that's regardless of the fact that the U.S. has been an active accessory and an enabler and an assister of Saudi Arabia's bombing of Yemen, I would, I would go a step further. It's not in spite of the fact uh, that the U.S. is involved in slaughtering people in Yemen. It's because of that fact that we hear so little 
about the bombing of Yemen and the suffering there uh, with the help of the United States. And one more quick point. I cite in the book a powerful study by the media watch group FAIR, which you can find at FAIR.org. At Fairness and Accuracy Reporting, they looked at MSNBC, the great supposed liberal network, and found that for a long stretch of time, while this slaughter was taking place, MSNBC virtually never mentioned hmm. that Saudi Arabia was killing so many people with U.S. assistance in Yemen. And yet, what did Rachel Maddow at MSNBC ride to the higher and higher ratings with? Like the rest of the network, it was all about Russia, 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 Russiagate uh, during the Trump administration. Well, the United States has 750 military bases in foreign countries and territories, and that compares to no more than three dozen for Russia and only five for China. But this is something we don't hear about either. Are we uh, a more military, a militant country than we would like to believe we are? Perennial war and continuous war. I mean, what do we say about a nation that's been at war, the United States, been at war for just about 22 years now with uh, no halt during that time, with no indication that it will end. The fact that U.S. media uh, don't report it doesn't change the fact that it's ongoing. The United States, as I note in the book, uh, spends more money on the military than the next 10 nations in the world combined, and most of them are U.S. allies. Uh, so if you look at this century, the United States military has killed way more people uh, than Russia, although now Russia is seemingly uh, trying to catch up. I, I think it would have a long way to go. What we need, again, is a single standard. We don't have to choose sides between uh, the mass murder by the Russian government and mass murder by the U.S. government. And I think a strength of the progressive movements at our best is that we insist that we're going to have a single standard of human rights. Well, since this is a, something that's occurred during both Democratic and Republican administrations, is there any hope for the future? And we don't have a lot of time. Can you give me a quick answer? My quick answer would be to quote Antonio Gramsci, imprisoned uh, under Mussolini, who said that we need pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on our show. Norman Solomon, his latest book, War Made Invisible, How America Hides the Human Toll of Its Military Machine. He's the co-founder of RootsAction.org, executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, and his books include War Made Easy and Made Love Got War. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I guess it's a pleasure It's because it's really been upsetting at the same time. Well, uh, a necessary conversation, I think. Thanks very much, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of the work she did in preparing for this interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has now surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, everywhere else you get your podcasts. 
And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support BAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You heard what Norman Solomon said. We have been a unique institution during many, over many years. So we're asking all of the listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with to keep it going by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned earlier, if you'd like a copy of the book that we've been discussing, uh, if you become a member for $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate, we'd be happy to send you a, a, a copy of the book. You can also consider becoming a sustaining member for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, which allows us to plan for the future. And you can do that as long as you wish. But um, either way, I hope that you'll consider doing this because your tax-deductible dollars are really important to us. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when, at 1 when our guest will be Alejandra Olivia discussing her new book called Rivermouth. Mouth. <laughs>